0: As we remain standing, let's pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, please do take your seats. Well, good morning everyone, and Fong, would you mind just closing those doors, is that okay, thank you very much, thank you. Well, fresh out of Bible college, there was a young pastor who found a job as an assistant pastor at a very prestigious church, and one Sunday, early on in his new role, he was given the opportunity to preach, and he prepared diligently. He was perhaps a bit too excited to use all the learning that he'd acquired and and he worked very hard to make his words eloquent and smooth. And he was shaking hands with members, members of the congregation after the service when he was approached by one of the older ladies who was known and respected in the church and in the community. Sir, she said with a smile, Your sermon was like the peace of God. And the young preacher's grin widened. His chest filled out until she continued on Yes, it surpassed all understanding. (laughs) Well, we're all evaluators, aren't we? We evaluate ourselves, we evaluate others. We even evaluate our church and our church leaders and church leaders elsewhere. And that was certainly happening back in the first century in Corinth. And we're going to pick up our series, as I mentioned earlier, in chapter 4. Please turn back there. The the verses won't be on the screen. Uh, It's page 1146. Have that open in a church Bible or on your uh, app. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And our opening verses there tell us how church leaders should be evaluated and regarded. Chapter 4, verse 1. This then is how you ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now, it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful Servants are entrusted with the responsibilities of their master's business, estate, household. They're not freelance and just able to do whatever they like, but rather they go about their role in accordance with their master, on his behalf, in, in line with his heart, with his purposes and aims. Servants are given a valuable resource, resource and for church leaders none more so than the good news of Jesus Christ, which God has given, which people like me are to serve and to steward diligently, being faithful with what he's entrusted to us. If you were here a few weeks ago, I said that the word minister means servants in Latin. I don't, I don't know any Latin, by the way. I've mentioned it twice this morning. I don't want you to think that I'm some kind of expert in Latin. I'm not. But it means servant in Latin. So as the lead minister, it means that I'm the lead servant. And these verses tell us that my master is Christ. And so Christian leaders especially, we're to follow in Christ's model of leadership. I'm going to put some verses on the screen that are from John chapter 13. It was just before the Passover festival Now, how would you expect that verse to continue? All things were under the power of Jesus, so he clicked his fingers to be attended to, bossed the insignificant people around, made sure that he had the best seat and was the most prominent, that he reclined in luxury and comfort, One Australian Bible college was facing, but, uh, facing fina- budget cuts a number of years ago in financial difficulty. And to save some money, the college asked for volunteers from amongst the student body to clean the toilets. Weeks went by. No one volunteered. And yet, mysteriously, the toilets in the bathrooms were kept spotless. And it was only when one student found the college principal in there early one morning cleaning the loose that they realized what had, was happening. I saw this tweet from Nicky Gumbel recently which captures the point well. If service is beneath you, then leadership is beyond you. If service is beneath you, then leadership is beyond you. It was quite the opposite approach that was being taken in the church in Corinth they were acting just like the world around them rather than following this countercultural way of jesus people had been aligning themselves to certain leaders making factions promoting personalities competing cliques and they were evaluating leaders against the world's standards not against god against god's but paul is clear in our verses that it's god's evaluation that counts we mustn't rely on the evaluation of others or even our own evaluation The final accountability is to God. Have a look with me, verse 3 onwards. I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness. And will expose the motives of the heart. At each time, at that time, each will receive their praise from God. Now it's important that I say that tragically, some church leaders have abused these verses, and they have ignored the wise counsel and correction of others in their church and other leaders, which are actually great gifts from the Lord. And at the same time, leaders mustn't overbalance and be unhealthily sensitive to thoughts and opinions of, of others about our leadership. That can, that can just be crippling. The only infallible evaluation of a leadership is God's, not our own or others. And let me say that if you have been deeply hurt or wounded by a church leader in the past, you then. Then I hope that the words that uh, the, that bring an encouragement to you that He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness, and will expose the motives of the heart. Things will be put right one day. For some in this life, certainly in eternity. And I love the way that a pastor called Stephen Um applies these principles more broadly to us all. And he speaks of the liberation that comes from knowing that it's God's opinion of us that counts. The gospel says that our evaluation is not ultimately based on what we think of ourselves or what others think of us, but of what God thinks of us. And God ultimately evaluates sinners on the basis of what they think of Jesus. And this changes the way individuals think about themselves because it turns failures upside down. How does the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ transform the way you think about yourself? It turns failures upside down. That's God's grace. That's what's at the heart of verses six and seven. Public recognition and honor and self-promotion had become a major preoccupation in first century Corinth. Not so different from our own world after all. But even if we have that, that's not where our value, our worth, are to be found as Christians. As Christians, we're not to find our worth and our value not in the fickle fortunes of a world where we can be celebrated one minute and then canceled the next, but rather we find our worth and our value in our status as the children of God who've received the gift of grace from God. That's, the, that's what the heart of verse seven is, a beautiful summary of grace. It's what we've been given. Everything is a gift of God. And as Jerry Bridges puts it, your bad days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. And your good days are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. And as we come into the rest of the chapter, I want us to be asking in our minds, in our hearts, have this question going around them as we we look at these verses. What are your expectations of a lifetime of following Jesus? What are your expectations of that? If you follow Jesus for however many more weeks, months, years, decades you have left in this life, what do you expect? What could come across your path in following Jesus? How will you respond? And just before I reread from verse 8 again, don't be surprised that we find humor and sarcasm and irony in the Bible. The church in Corinth thought that they were really successful, lively, mature, effective, super spiritual. They thought they'd arrived. But in these verses, Paul skewers their self-importance. He's like a satirist, bursting the bubble of their pretensions to worldly wisdom and leadership and honor and status. And as I read this, just just remember that this would have been read out on Sundays in the first century in Corinth. Imagine their faces. Verse 8, already you have all you want, already you've become rich, you've begun to reign and that without us. How I wish that you really had begun to reign so that we might also reign with you. For it seems to me that God has put us as apostles on display at the end of the procession, like those condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored, we are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We're in rags, we are brutally treated, we are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. We bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. Do you see how Paul is contrasting their whole approach with his own approach and that of the other apostles who are following the way of the cross? The imagery in verse 9 is that of a Roman military parade. What they used to do when their generals had won a great victory They'd have a procession, the successful generals at the front, and then right the way at the end of the procession, the prisoners of war, condemned to die, walking in their chains to their death. And Paul lists a catalogue of other afflictions that he and other followers of Jesus experience. You see, the trouble was that the Corinthians had the wrong expectations of what it would be like to follow Jesus for the remainder of their lives. They thought that they had the fullness of of all the blessings of the fullness of God's future kingdom now, and they were forgetting that we live in the now and the not yet of the kingdom, because yes, God's kingdom, his reign and his rule and his goodness has begun in the world in Christ but it isn't here in its fullness until Christ returns and makes all things new. And when we understand that, we will understand that that is why we experience the tension that we experience in the world as Christians, the now and the not yet. We get glimpses of glory, of how things should be and will be, but not the full picture. Our former senior pastor, Peter Lewis, said this. That time is not yet here in its glorious fullness. Tyrants strut their hour upon the stage still, and fools are put in high places. God's people suffer in many lands where churches are burned down, pastors imprisoned and innocents blown up or gunned down. And in our Western societies, God is not great. His preachers are not valued. And all religion is despised. The name of Jesus Christ is heard more as a swear word than a beacon of hope. And one generation after another goes out into this darkness. Friends, we have to have this sense of the now and the not yet. In order to be able to navigate our ways through the, the complexities of life in this fallen world as Christians, and friends, if you don't have that sense of the now and the not yet, then well, then you will likely to, likely to just to feel disillusioned or defeated, or you'll have to live in some kind of escape, naive escapism. Peter continued. God is never served by escapism, fantasy, exaggeration, and the lie. Always bring his reality into your reality. Do not deny the facts of life, but learn from the whole counsel of God how to deal with them. There are such things as acceptance and trust and resignation to the will of God in setback and sickness and old age, and even in death, indeed especially then. The last time I visited Peter before he died, Colin and I, we, went to, we walked into the side room at the city hospital that Peter was in. We'd, we'd taken Gwyn Davis's funeral earlier that afternoon, so it was already quite an emotional day. And Colin and I went in to see Peter. He was lying in the hospital bed with the scriptures open in the final weeks of his life. He had the scriptures open. He had a copy of the Times newspaper on one side and a copy of his own book on the the Puritans on the other side. You see, Peter lived and died well. He had that biblically balanced expectation. He brought the whole counsel of God in the scriptures. He brought all of that to bear on his life, on his own illness, on the events of the world that he read about in the newspaper. And he was accompanied by his great friends, the Puritans. Puritans. You see, Peter always brought God's reality into his and into ours. And that reality is most clearly shown at the cross of Christ. Paul doesn't mention the word, the cross, or the words of the cross in these verses, but It's at the heart of all he's saying, that the good news is cross-shaped, that we follow the one who is shamed, who is brutalized, who is humiliated, and so we take our cue from him. Those who follow Jesus, follow Jesus. The Corinthians saw and promoted wisdom, honor, wealth, the status of the world, but their, their expectations were dangerously awry because they had Christianity the wrong way up. Do we? Do we? If we did, what might be the warning lights for us on the dashboard? Andrew Wilson is a teaching pastor at King's Church in London, and he writes this. You do not have to look far in the contemporary church to see success defined in exactly the same way as it is in the world. Numbers, downloads, budgets, bums on seats, book sales, academic qualifications, buildings, celebrity attendance, worldly influence. None of these things are necessarily wrong. But those of us who have them, which to some extent includes me, need to examine our hearts frequently in light of 1 Corinthians 4. And in light of the cross to which it points, to see whether we have flipped the gospel on its head without realizing it. I'm going to spend the next few days on a national uh, church leadership conference. There'll be about a thousand people there. I know that I'll be asked how, as folks chat to me, how are things going at Cornerstone? And what will I want to say? It's likely that I'll be that, uh, have the, most, the, the, the biggest church numerically, the biggest budget probably amongst all of those people. Colin and Phil and others leading the worship band. Are those the things that I want to emphasize? Numbers, budgets, buildings. Those can be great things. But I need to examine my heart to see if I have things the right way up or not. A story is told in which the 12th century founder of the uh, Dominic Order of Monks, St. Dominic, visits the Pope. And as the story goes, in the 12th century, the, the Pope is surrounded by all the wealth and all the splendor of medieval Rome. And the Pope, in this story, he refers to Acts 3 and boasts that Peter can no longer say, silver and gold, I do not have. No, indeed replies St. Dominic. But then again, neither can he say, rise up and walk. And the point is that once the church forgets that the kingdom of Jesus is an upside down kingdom, once the church forgets that and becomes like the world, then the church loses the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus. So when the church promotes self-fulfillment rather than self-denial, when the church promotes power as a scramble to the top, and when the church promotes activity or expression as the source of identity and worth and value, then when that happens, the church has things the wrong way up and in time loses the transforming power of the gospel. Because the transforming power of the gospel is in the kingdom of Jesus, the king who reigns from the cross. And it's in the kingdom of Jesus where the poor are rich, the humble are lifted up, the weak are strong, where leading is serving, where glory is suffering, and where our identity, our worth, our value is not achieved, but is given as dearly loved children of God made in his image. you'll see the phrase in those verses being fools for Christ. The imagery is from the prophets of old who were usually rejected by their very cultured but actually often disintegrating societies that they spoke to. They were made fools in the eyes of their contemporaries. So let me ask, what are your expectations for a lifetime of following Jesus? It could be, not definitely, but it could be that in the UK, holding to biblical Christianity costs a great deal. It could be the case. More than it has done for centuries in these lands. Well, if it does, it might not, but if it does, let's remember those words in verses 12... And, begin, and into 13. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. That embodies the wisdom and the power, the transforming power of the cross. Later, Paul would write, how God said to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And in truth, that message gets through to us very slowly. It takes a lifetime of following Jesus for that really to hit home with us. But the Lord helps us with that along the way. And in the final verses, we find some ways in which the Lord helps us in his kindness. That he provides other people whom we can learn from and walk together as we follow Jesus on this path. I'm not going to read verses 14 to 21 again. Well, I'll just read verse 14, actually. I'm writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. The concept of honor and shame is common to many Asian and Middle Eastern countries. And so if you're from or if you've spent significant time in in such a culture, then you will likely understand this letter in a richer and a deeper way than I do. Because the honor-shame culture was there in the first century in Corinth. And actually, I'm reading a fascinating book at the minute that's an Indian reading of 1 Corinthians, entitled Twin Cultures Separated by Centuries. And Paul wants to teach them the lessons of chapter four. He wants to teach them all this without humiliating them. He didn't want them to feel shame and not listen to what he had to say, but rather he wanted them to know that he loved them and and so he addressed them as a loving father to his children. And he urges them to imitate him as he follows Christ in the way of the cross. But he also knows that it's difficult to imitate someone who's not present. Discipleship is difficult from a distance, and so Paul is going to send Timothy to them, because disciples are primarily made by people, and that's one reason why being physically present wherever it's possible in church life is so important, that proximity to God's people. And from these verses, I just want us to ask ourselves two questions, Firstly, who is influencing you? Who is influencing you? Because you are being influenced, the only question is, who's doing it? And in what way? Are you being influenced by those who are living out a cross-shaped life, who are enamored with God's grace, who know that he has taken the failures in their life, and made something beautiful in Christ? Who is influencing you? And who are you influencing? Are you showing them a cross-shaped life? Are you living out the values of that upside-down kingdom, being reliant on God's grace? And we do have a wonderful opportunity to learn to do this with those who are different from us. Maybe those who are in a different life season to you, or a different culture, or a different ethnicity, or maybe a different personality. We long to be that intercultural, interethnic, intergenerational church the Lord is calling us to be. Because these are all ways in which the Lord keeps us going on that path of following Jesus. And of course, God didn't just send us a letter from a distance. He sent us a person. His son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he provides us with the bread and the wine, which we both remember him by, and look forward to his return to judge and to make all things new. That time when there will no longer be a now and a not yet but just a now. And just as a a bit of wine and a bit of bread is just a glimpse, just a foretaste of a proper dinner, a proper feast, then what we experience now is just a glimpse, just a foretaste of what is to come when Jesus returns in person and makes all things new.